chapter 10, verses 1 through 31, verses 1 through 12. And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again, and, as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisee came to him, and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command of you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement, and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What, therefore, God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Burkett notes, The first verse of this chapter acquaints us with the great labor and pains our Savior took in the exercise of his ministry traveling from place to place in a hot country and that on foot to preach the gospel when he was here upon earth, teaching all persons, but especially ministers, by his example to be willing to undergo pains and labor, even unto much weariness, in the service of God and in the duties of their calling. For this is God's ordinance, that everyone should feel the burden of his calling and the painfulness of it. But Lord, how nice and delicate are some laborers in the vineyard who are willing to do nothing but what they can do with ease. They cannot endure to think about laboring unto weariness, but are sparing of their pains for fear of shortening their days and hastening their end. Whereas the lamp of our lives can never be better spent or burnt out than in lighting others to heaven. The following verses acquaint us with an ensnaring question which the Pharisees put to our Savior concerning the matter of divorce concluding that they should entrap him in his answer, whatever it was. If he denied the lawfulness of divorce, then they would charge him with contradicting Moses, who allowed it. If he affirmed it, then they would condemn him for contradicting his own doctrine, St. Matthew 5.32, for favoring men's lusts and complying with the wicked custom of the Jews, who upon every slight and frivolous occasion put away their wives from them. But such was the wisdom of our Savior in all his answers to the ensnaring Pharisees, that neither their wit nor malice could lay hold upon anything to entangle him in his talk. Observe, therefore, the piety and prudence of our Savior's answer to the Pharisee. He refers them to the first institution of marriage, when God made husband and wife one flesh, to the intent that matrimonial love might be both incommunicable and indissolvable and accordingly asks them, What did Moses command you? Thereby teaching us that the best means for deciding all doubt and resolving all controversies about matter of religion is to have recourse unto the scripture or the written word of God. What did Moses command you? Observe farther how our Savior, to confute the Pharisees and convince them of the unlawfulness of divorce used by the Jews, lays down the first institution of marriage and chose them first the author, next the time, then the end of the institution. The author, God, what God hath joined together, etc. Marriage is an ordinance of God's own appointment, 
as the ground and foundation of all sacred and civil society. The time of the institution was in the beginning. Marriage is almost as old as the world, as old as nature itself. There was no sooner one person, but God divided him into two. And no sooner was there two, but he united them in one. And the end of the institution of marriage, Christ declares, was this, that there might be not only an intimacy and nearness, but also an inseparable union and oneness by means of this endearing relation. The conjugal knot is tied so close that the bonds of matrimonial love are stronger than those of nature. Stricter is the tie betwixt husband and wife than that between parent and child, according to God's own appointment. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. And whereas our Savior adds, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Two things are hereby intimated to us. One, that God is the author of the close and intimate union which is betwixt man and wife in a married condition. Two, that it is not in the power of man to untie or dissolve that union which God has made betwixt man and his wife in the married state. Yea, it is a great sin to advise unto or endeavor after the separation of them. Observe lastly our Savior's private conference with the disciples after his public disputation with the Pharisees about this matter of divorce. He tells his disciples, and in them he tells all Christians to the end of the world, that it is utterly unlawful for a man and wife to be separated by divorcement one from another for any cause whatsoever except only for the sin of adultery committed by either of them after the marriage. Learn hence that according to the word and will of God, nothing can violate the bonds of marriage and justify a divorce betwixt man and wife, save only the defiling of the marriage bed by adultery and uncleanness. This is the only case in which man and wife may lawfully part, and being for this cause parted, whether they may afterwards marry again to another person has been much disputed but that the innocent and injured person, whether man or woman, for there is an equal right on both sides, may not marry again, seems very unreasonable, for why should one suffer for another's fault? Verses 13 through 16. And they brought young children to him, that he might touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Burkett notes, Observe here a solemn action performed. Children are brought to Christ to be blessed by him. Where note one, the persons brought, children, young children, suckling children, as the word imports, St. Luke 18.15. They brought them in their arms, not led them by their hands. Two, the person they are brought unto, Jesus Christ. But for what end? Not to baptize them, but to bless them. The parents looking upon Christ as a prophet, a great prophet, the great prophet, do bring their infants to him that they might receive the benefit of his blessings and prayers. Whence learn, one, that infants are capable of benefit by Jesus Christ. Two, that it is the best office that parents can perform unto their children to bring them unto Christ, that they may be made partakers of that benefit. Three, 
if children be capable of benefit by Christ, if capable of his blessing on earth and presence in heaven, if they be subjects of his kingdom of grace and heirs of his kingdom of glory, then they may be baptized. For they that are in covenant have a right to the seal of the covenant. If Christ denies not infants in the kingdom of heaven, which is the greater, what have reasons of ministers to deny them the benefit of baptism, which is the less? Verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeled to him, and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Burkett notes, observe here, one, a person addressing himself to Christ with an important question in his mouth. This person was a young man, a rich man and a ruler, a young man in the prime of his age, a rich man in the fullness of his wealth, and a ruler in the prime of his authority and power. From whence learn that for young men, rich men, especially noblemen, to inquire the way to salvation is very commendable, but very rare. Observe, too, as the person addressing, so the manner of the address. He came running and kneeled to Christ, where observe his voluntariness. He came of himself, not drawn by others' importunity, but drawn by his own personal affections. And his readiness, he came running. This showed his zeal and forwardness to meet with Christ and to be resolved by him. And lastly, his humility. He kneeled to him as an eminent prophet and teacher, not knowing him to be the Son of God. Observe 3. The address itself. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Where note 1. He believes the certainty of a future state. 2. He professes his desire of an eternal happiness in that state. 3. He declares his readiness to do some good thing in order to the obtaining of that happiness. Hence learn that the light of nature, or natural religion, teaches men that good works are necessary to salvation, or that some good thing must be done by them who at death expect eternal life. It is not talking well and professing well, but doing well, that entitles us to heaven and eternal life. Verse 18. And Jesus say unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Or kept notes, as if Christ had said, Why callest thou me good, when thou dost not believe or own me to be God? For there is none good, that is, essentially or originally good, absolutely and immutably good, but God only, nor any derivatively good, but he that receiveth his goodness from God also. There is no mere man that is absolutely and perfectly good of himself, but by participation and derivation from God only. See the note on Matthew nineteen seventeen, Verse 19. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. Burkett notes. Observe here that the duties which our Savior instances in are the duties of the second table, which hypocrites are most failing in. But nothing is a better evidence of our unfeigned love to God than the sincere performance of our duty to our neighbors. Love to man is a fruit and testimony of our love to God. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? 1 John 4.20 Learn hence that such as are defective in the duties of the second table, charity and justice, to make but a counterfeit show of religion, though they pretend to the highest measure and degree of love to God. Here note 
that there are two ways of injuring our neighbors, which ought to be avoided, namely, one, by theft, and this is either privately or clandestinely, without the knowledge of the owner, or openly and by force, against the consent of the owner. Both are forbidden in the Eighth Commandment. Two, by secret and cunning devices, where the law and a picture of the right is made use of to cover the injury. This is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment, and here expressed by Thou shalt not defraud. And surely all such endeavors to defraud must show a very covetous mind, inclining a person against the dictates of his own conscience to defraud another of his right. Verse 20. And he answereth and said unto him, Master, all these things I have observed from my youth. Burkett notes, This assertion of a young man might be very true, according to the Pharisee's sense and interpretation of the law, which condemned only the gross outward act, not the inward lust and motion of the heart. An outward obedience to the law this young man had performed. This made him think well of himself and conclude the goodness of his own condition. Learn hence how prone men are to think the best of themselves and to have too high an opinion of their own goodness and righteousness before God. All these things I have kept from my youth. It is a natural corruption in men to think too well of themselves and of their own goodness and righteousness before God, but it is very dangerous and fatal so to do. Verses 21 and 22. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up thy cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, Christ's compassion towards this young man. He loved him with a love of pity and compassion, with a love of courtesy and respect. There may be some very admirable and lovely qualities in natural and unregenerated men, and goodness, in what kind or degree whatsoever it is, doth attract and draw forth Christ's love towards a person. If Christ did love civility, what respect has he for sincere sanctity? Observe, too, our Lord's admonition, one thing thou lackest, which was true self-denial in renouncing the sin of covetousness and the inordinate love of worldly wealth. We ought, upon God's call, to maintain such a readiness of mind as to be willing to part with all for God's sake, which is dear unto us in this world. Observe 3. Our Lord's Injunction. Sell what that hast, and give to the poor. This was not a common but a special precept, belonging particularly to this young man. It was a commandment of trial given to him, like that given to Abraham, Genesis 22, to convince him of his corrupt confidence in his riches. Yet it is thus far of general use to us all, to teach us to contemn worldly possessions, and to be willing to part with them when they hinder our happiness and salvation. It follows, and take up thy cross. An allusion to the Roman custom, when the malefactor was to be crucified, he bore its cross upon his shoulder and carried it to the place of execution. It is not the taking, but the patient bearing of the cross which is our duty. Learn that all Christ's followers should prepare their shoulders for Christ's cross. To bear the cross implies faithfulness and integrity without shifting, patience and submission without murmuring, joy and cheerfulness without fainting. Observe 4. The effect which our Savior's admonition had upon this young person. He was sad and grieved at that saying. Thence note that carnal men are sad and exceedingly sorrowful, 
when they cannot win heaven in their own way. Two, that such as are wedded to the world will renounce Christ rather than the world, when the world and Christ stand in competition. Verses 23 through 27. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Christ answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Burkett notes, From this discourse of our holy lords, concerning the danger of riches, and the difficulty that attend rich men in their way to heaven, we may collect and gather, first, that rich men do certainly meet with more difficulties in their way to heaven than other men. It's difficult to withdraw their affections from riches, to place their supreme love upon God in the midst of their abundance. It's difficult to depend entirely upon God in a rich condition, for the rich man's wealth is a strong tower. Secondly, that yet the fault lies not in the riches, but in rich men, who by placing their trust and reposing their confidence in riches do render themselves incapable of the kingdom of God. Observe 3. The proverbial speech with our Savior makes use of to set forth the difficulty of a rich man's salvation. It's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye. This was a proverb among the Jews, signifying a thing of great difficulty, next to an impossibility, and it implies thus much, that it is not only a very great difficulty, but an utter impossibility for such as abound in worldly wealth and place their confidence therein to be saved without an extraordinary grace and assistance from God. It is hard for God to make a rich man happy because he thinks himself happy without God. Observe 4. The disciples are affected with wonder and admiration at this doctrine of our Saviors and cry out, Who then can be saved? Learn then, that such as are the special and particular difficulties which lie in the rich man's way to salvation, that their getting to heaven is a matter of wonder and admiration to the disciples of Christ. Observe 5. How our Savior resolves this doubt by telling his disciples that what was impossible with men was possible with God, implying that it's impossible for any man, rich or poor, by his own natural strength to get to heaven. And 2 that when we are discouraged with the sense of our own impotency, we should consider the power of God and fix our faith upon it. With God, all things are possible. Verses 28 through 31. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sister or father or mother or wife or children or land for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Burkett notes, the apostles, having heard our Savior's command to sell all and give to the poor, St. Peter, in the name of the rest, tells Christ that they had left all to follow him. Where note how Peter magnifies the little which he had left for Christ and ushers it in with a note of admiration. Lo, we have left it all. 
Learn hence that though it be very little that we suffer for Christ, and have to forsake upon his account, yet we are apt to magnify and extol it, as if it were some great matter. Behold, we have left all and followed thee. Observe next our Lord's kind and gracious answer. Those that leave all to follow him shall be no losers by him. We may be losers for Christ, we shall never be losers by him. For whatever we part with in this world for the sake of Christ, houses or land, brethren or sisters, we shall receive a hundredfold now in this life. But how so? Not in kind, but in equivalency. Not a hundred brethren, sisters, or land in kind, but he shall enjoy that in God which all creatures would be to him if they were multiplied a hundred times. And the gifts and graces, the comforts and consolations of the Holy Spirit shall be a hundred times better portion than anything we can part with for the sake of Christ. For the sense of the words, the first shall be last, etc., See the note on Matthew 20, 19.